Well, it's an honor and also uh, a cause of a little bit of sadness uh, to open and to close this uh, lecture. This is the last of our lectures uh, in the Wisdom of Persia series. And uh, so that's not so happy. But in any case, it's wonderful that uh, Dr. Gomshayi will be speaking to us this evening on the mystic outlook on nature in Thoreau and Persian Sufism. I know we all look forward to hearing him. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Before commencing my discourse about thorough and Persian Sufism on nature, I wish to tell you a story. That last year when I came here and I had the honor to visit Mrs. Kathleen Rain, she gave me a gift, a book of his, a selection of his poetry. I translated some of them into Persian and a couple of weeks before coming to England, I went to a friend of mine's house. He is an artist, a carpet weaver, and a designer of carpets. He is one of the most famous carpet designers in Iran, called Arab Zadi. And uh, she has mystic inclinations, mystical inclinations. Hmm? It doesn't work, uh, Mr. Bashiri. Okay. And uh, she has actually brought much mystical poetry into his carpets. And then we were discussing about some mystic ideas, and I recited a poem, translation, of course, a poem by Mrs. Kathleen Rain. And I suddenly saw that she was shedding tears, and she was so impressed and so motivated. And then he said, uh, who is this lady? Have you seen her? I said, yes. We had a couple of hours talk together. And then he told me, I want to gift a copy of my books, of my book, which is an album of... Uh, his, a collection of his carpets, uh, and he signed it in the name of Mrs. Kathleen Rain, and I have the honor to uh, offer it to Mrs. Kathleen Rain. Of course, he has written that this book is, it is called The Knot of Love. You know, Persian carpets are knot by knot, and sometimes in every square meter there is a million knots, but it is woven with love, with uh, love for beauty and goodness. So, you see, for example, I'll show you just one. Uh, this is the great question of the world. How the world is an, an enigma, uh, you could say a paradox. And uh, this is the big question. How can you answer this big question? By wine? If you get 
Yes, if you get drunk and uh, get relieved from yourself, then you will understand the answer to this great question mark. And similarly, many of his uh, carpets, of course, some of them are quite in the traditional line, but for example, this is this one. Uh, okay, uh, there is much poetry in many of these carpets, and uh, uh, each of them has an explanation and is giving a message. He says that I want to speak with my carpets rather than uh, just offer a, a covering. Now, returning to our subject, uh, in Persia we have the custom of starting everything by uh, in the name of God. We say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which means in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. Of course, it's not just a name, it requires much more. It requires that we deny our name, as Romeo said, Juliet said to Romeo, that deny your name, let's be called love. Let's have no name at all. Let's speak in the name of God. It's a source of pleasure for me to find myself once again in this earth of majesty. Oh, sorry, I have made a mistake. Oh, sorry, just a minute. I have uh, confused the, the previous New greetings and salutations to you, lovers of beauty and poesy, lovers of rose and nightingale. Last week we had we made an excursion into the gardens of Persian poetry. There are many gardens, Hadiratul Harira means the garden of truth. We have Gulshan Raz, the garden of secrets. We have Rosatul Anwar, the garden of lights. So these are gardens, garden of light and garden of secrets. We picked flowers, picked roses, and lent our ears to the nightingales and drank a few draughts of that wine, which is the sunshine of Persian realm of gold. Tonight, we are going to make a promenade in the unfenced garden of nature. in the unfenced garden of nature, to visit Henry David Thoreau on the banks of Walden, a lovely lakelet in Concord, Massachusetts, which is a perfect forest mirror, like a white crystal 
in a setting of emerald and to have an interview with a, num with a number of drunken Persian poets to inquire what they have beheld in the transparent mirror of nature, what messages they have received from the nightingales and early rising rooster or cock. Tonight, our wine is what is called the Adam's Ale, which is the best brew. To quote Thoreau, a draught of this wild nectar bring and I will not taste the spring of Helicon. Spring of Helicon is the spring of, uh, for museums, for the nine muses. But as a starter, let me recite parts of an enchanting poem by Mrs. Catherine, The Marriage of Psyche, that sums up the views of Thoreau on nature. Almost everything Thoreau is going to say you will find in a miniature form in this poem that sums up the views of Thoreau on nature and provides a dance ground for the twirling dervishes and vagabonds of Persia. Marriage of Psyche in my love's house, you see, nature, all nature is a house. There are hills and pastures carpeted with flowers. His roof is the blue sky, his lamp the evening star. The doors of his house are the winds, and the rain his curtain. In his, in his house are many mountains, each alone, and islands where the seabirds home. I asleep, in sleep I was born here, and waking found rivers and waves my servants. I can give you equivalents from the Quran, from Persian literature, that uh, uh, this nature is the house of God. And he has put everything in our service. The sun, the moon, Abru Bado Maho Khorshido Falak Dar Karan, Tato Nani Bekafariu Bataflat Nahori. And waking found and waking found rivers and waves my servants, sun and cloud and winds, bird messengers, and all the flocks of his hill and shoals of his seas. I rest in the heat of the day, in the light of shadows, in the light shadows of leaves, and voices of air and water speak to me. All this he has given me, whose face I have never seen, but into whose all enfolding arms I sink in sleep. He has married me with a ring, a ring of bright water, whose ripple whose ripples travel from the heart of the sea. He has married me with a ring of light, the glitter <coughs> broadcast on the swift river. He has married me with the sun's circle, 
too dazzling to see, traced in summer sky. Henry David Thoreau was born in one of the loveliest corners in this house in 1917. And after a short stay of 45 years, he moved to his permanent residence, passing through the old gate commonly called death. Because he didn't believe in death. There is a verse in the Quran that uh, it means everybody tastes this. It means that you are going to eat and devour this rather than this you. You are going to taste this. This does not taste you. What was his mission during his short abode, this short abode? He answers himself in his poetry. I have searched my faculties around to learn why life to me was lent. I will attend his faintest sound and declare to man what God has meant. It means that poets are amplifiers of the faint voice of nature as well as the faint voice of our heart or our conscience. So he was bred to no other profession. He never married. Though he had a deep experience of love, He lived alone. He never went to church because he had made a church within his heart and took it with himself everywhere. And he was living under the temple, under the dome of the heavens, and it was temple enough for him. He never voted. He refused to pay a tax to the state. He ate no flesh. He drank no wine. He never knew the use of tobacco, and though a naturalist, he used neither trap nor gun. His public library was nature. You know, nature is a teacher as well as a library. And his teachers and preachers were the songsters were the songsters of the forest. I'm quoting himself, I mean Toro. Here nature taught from year to year when only red men came to hear. Me think it was in this school of art. Venice and Naples learned their part. But still their mistress, to my mind, he, his young disciples leave behind. Sorry, her young disciples leave behind. He, he followed the advice of of William Blake that hear the bards whose ears have heard the holy word. It was the nightingale that taught kids to
to be happy to see nothing but beauty in the world. He loved solitude because he was in the company of the nature. I never found a companion more companionable than solitude. In this blissful solitude, he lent his ears to the sounds of nature and his eyes to a loving observation of visible world, not a scientific observation. His natural history is not much dependable because uh, he didn't have a scientific outlook about nature, but just a loving and attentive outlook. A visible world and let his imagination take wing to, to invisible, to invisible realms beyond the reach of reason. A new morning dawned in him that made the sun fade before its light. This is true light, all else are shadow. This light, this sun is too blazing for the eyes of reason, which is but a torch with a cloud of smoke around it. This is the true sense of transcendentalism. You know, he was a transcendentalist, and transcendentalism means to go beyond the limits of reason. I have, I hear beyond, I'm quoting Thoreau, I hear beyond the range of sounds. I see beyond the range of sight. New earth and skies and seas around. And in my day the sun does fade its light. He respected reason, of course, as far as it was reasonable enough to refrain from reasoning about things beyond reason. His transcendentalism was to make a journey from the village of multiplicity. You know, in Persian literature, they call the world of appearance a village, not a city. The village of multiplicity to the unbounded city of unity, a unity beyond the faculties of reason to establish or to demonstrate. The critic of pure reason by Kant is indeed an effort to display the limitations of reason. Reason, of course, partial reason, not universal reason or universal intellect. Agle kol and agle juzvi, you know, partial reason, which is in us. Not universal intellect cannot comprehend how all motion originates from rest. They say, there is something which is in full rest, but creates all motion. This reason cannot understand. And there is a first mover who is unmoved. You know, Francis Bacon, uh, who was one of the followers of reason and advocated reason, he says that it is all rubbish. What, is, what does it mean? A mover who is not moved. So... How time vanishes like a shadow in eternity. How the colorless and the formless creates form and color. How in the world of, in the words of Mrs. Rain, 
transcendental touch of love summons worlds to being from the same poem. Transcending the hazy doubt of disturbing reason, Thoreau was in peace with God. When a pious visitor inquired sweetly, Henry, have you made your peace with God? He replied, we have never quarreled. <laughs> I'm quoting some points from Rumi, having the same idea that he had made peace with God. And why? Man ke solham man ba in pedar, in jahan chon jannat astam dar nazar. I'm constantly at peace with this father. So this world is a paradise to me. Shakha binam misal mahiyan. Bargha kafzan misal mutriban. I see the bows moving about like fish. I see the leaves clapping like minstrels. I hear the loving sound of its running waters. That till my heart, that fills my heart with ecstasy and joy. از هزاران من نمیگویم یکی زان که آکنده است هر گوش از شکی I reveal not one out of the thousand things that I see because people's ears are filled with doubt and suspicion Henry wrote mostly of himself his apology being that he knew not anyone more than himself he said if, it, if I could know anyone more than myself I would write about him he has left some two millions of words in manuscript as a diarist. His published works, too, are mostly about himself. Walden, his most famous and best-loved work, is a record of his experiences during his isolation in the woods. His poetry is the same. Well, I dispense since I'm afraid that I cannot read all the uh, papers. I dispense with the parts of the Toro's uh, biography and I'll just uh, discuss about his ideas. In 1841, he became an inmate of the house of Emerson, fell under his spell and inhaled the mountain air atmosphere of his the mountain atmosphere of his lofty thoughts and was admitted into the inner circle of chivalry of the intellectual round table whose king Arthur was Emerson himself. He learned much from Emerson and the effect of the presence of the superior persons of intellectual Coterie is an unquestionable, but uh, 
he does not acknowledge his indebtedness to anybody. He says, I have lived 30 years on this planet, and I have yet to hear the first syllable of valuable or even earnest advice from my seniors. Of course, this is the lesson he learned from Emerson that he should defend, uh, depend on himself because he wrote self-reliance uh, and so he learned from Emerson the same lesson. And Rumi says, Everybody is calling you to himself. I call you to thyself, to yourself. So Emerson had not taught him uh, to rely on others, but to rely on his own powers and talents. His political outlook. He starts his civil disobedience by this very quotable sentence. I heartily accept the motto that government is best that governs least. And then he adds that actually that government is best that governs not at all. <laughs> he joined the anti-slavery movement, but he did not believe that there is only one sort of a slavery. He believed in complete freedom of humanity from all sorts of all forms of a slavery. In ethics, his key word is sensuality. He knew that uh, there is only one sin. We can't have too many sins. There is only one sin, and that is sensuality. Other sins are different forms of the same thing. Even a lazy student who doesn't study diligently, he is uh, a sensual student because he indulges in idleness. So indulgence into one's idle desires, that is the main sin for him. And his recommendation is simplicity, unification, and living in the present time. One of his poems has the title Carpe Diem, means seize the, the day. Build not on tomorrow. It, uh, it's very similar to some cutterings from Omar Khayyam and from all Persian great Sufis. Build not on tomorrow but seize on today, from no future borrow the present to pay. The task of the present be sure to fulfill, if sad or if pleasant, be true to it still. God sendeth us sorrow, and cloudeth our day, his sun is on the morrow. Thoreau lived in a community that recognized no boundaries for self as well as for separation in a space or time. He identified himself with Sadi and old Egyptian or Hindu philosophers. Several times in his Walden, he says that I am one with Sadi. I don't consider myself separated from him. The oldest Egyptian or Hindu philosophers raised the corner of the veil from the statue of the divinity 
and still the trembling rope remains raised, I gaze upon as fresh a glory as he did, since it was I in him that was then so bold, and it is he in me that now reviews the vision, so there is unity between us. And again about Sadi, he says, Sadi entertained once identically the same thought that I do, and therefore I can find no essential difference between Sadi and myself. I'm reminded of a poem by Rumi who says, Johnny Gorgon Sagan as Hamjudas, Mutahid John Mardon The souls of uh, dogs and wolves and beasts are separated, but the souls of men of God are united. The basic, teach, the basic teachings of Thoreau is everywhere to be found in the world, in the works of romantic and mystical poets of the world. What is important is that every new, every now and then, an original poet sings the same tunes out of out of his own ecstasy and experience, and will un, with unconstrained voice calls people to hope and rejoice. You know, it doesn't matter that previous writers and poets have said exactly the same thing. What is important is that uh, this voice is original and new and out of his own experience. There is a very funny story of Mullah Nasreddin, the Persian wise fool. He is the wisest of the fool. And uh, he is uh, often narrated, uh, and there is insight in his anecdotes. He says that uh, once one of the friends of Mullah Nasreddin brought him some chickens. And then, after a time, somebody came and knocked at the door and said, Oh Mullah, I am the friend of your relative who brought you those chickens. Mullah served him. Uh, for the night and then a couple of days later another came and said I am the friend of the friend of that relative who brought you those chickens the third time somebody came and said I am the friend of the friend of the friend of that relative who brought you those chickens Mullah said I know how to serve you when it was dinner time he put just a bowl of hot water (laughs) on the table And the man said, what is this? Is it how you serve me? He said, this is the soup of the soup of the soup (laughs) of those chickens. So if there are no new voices, then people will forget all about it. It is necessary that every now and then there is a poet, there is a prophet, and they, they make it fresh all the time. Otherwise, it would get diluted. Although Toro says that he is one with Sadi, but there is one basic difference. That uh, unlike Sadi, who commingled his bitter medicine with the honey of wit, he liked to administer doses of moral, uh, I don't know how it is pronounced, canine or kenin. Canine, yes, canine. And never 
of sugaring his pills. Yes? Quinine. Quinine, yes, it is right. Uh, quinine, I had forgotten about it. Toro brought a new chicken. He revived the news that remains news. You know, Tennyson, I mean, uh, T.S. Eliot has given a definition for poetry, that poetry is a news that remains news. Or some have said that poetry is the newspaper for tomorrow. Yes, for the, for the future newspapers. He was truly a breeze coming from the realm of the beloved, from the house of the beloved. You know, in Persian, we say, Bad Sabah, Bada Saba means the north wind is a messenger between uh, lovers and the beloved. And uh, Thoreau has desired to be a breeze. O oh, nature, I do not aspire to be thy highest in the choir, to be a, meet- a meteor in the sky, or comment that may a, sorry, or comet that may range on high, only zephyr that may blow among the reeds by the river low. Some still work give me to do, some still work give me to do, only to be nearer to you. I can quote some poems, uh, many actually, Sabah Agar Guzari Oftadat Bekeshvare Dust, Biar Nafhi Az Gisuye Muambare Dust. O breeze, if thy path should chance the land of thy of the friend, bring a fragrant waft of air from the be, the be perfumed tresses of the friend. Thoreau using interpretation of Tennyson crossed the bar in May 1862. Left the mortal spring and united with the eternal spring to which he has made so many references in his poems. His grave, close to that of Hawthorne, lies in the lovely sleepy hollow in his native Concord. Well, this is a brief sketch of the life and thoughts of Thoreau. And regarding Persian Sufism, I'm not going to give a new introduction tonight because last week we said something about it. But I'll just remind you that in Persian Sufism, there is only one thing, and that is unity. What is else? They are manifestations of that same unity. So nature is, uh, in different interpretation, is either the face of God or is the shadow of God in a mirror or the signs of God according to the Quran. It says, Ayatollah. Everything is just a sign. It leads you to God. Or the poetry of God. An English poet says, Can I ever see 
a poem as beautiful as a tree. It means that a tree is a poem composed by God. And or the exhibition, art exhibition of God, or the voice of God, the attributes of immanence, or the garment of God, the manuscript of God. And last but not least, uh, nature is... uh, a shadow of the heart of man. It is very strange, but they believe that whatever gardens are outside are the shadows of the gardens inside. It is not an idealistic view. They don't believe that the outside world is illusion. No. But they believe that whatever garden, trees, and beauties you see outside are just a reflection from the heart. I'll later speak about that. Now, let me give you some examples of uh, the views of Thoreau and Persian Sufism on uh, the, the messages of nature and what they read in this manuscript. One of the inspiring chapters of Walden is entitled Sounds. It is opened by a warning that... Uh, Confining ourselves to printed book, we are in danger of forgetting the language which all things and events speak with, without metaphor, which alone is copious and stand, standard. He then describes and interprets all the voices he has heard in the forest. Each bring him a different message and insight. The chapter ends in an account of Toro's uh, deep fascination by the sound, by the vigorous, healthy sound of Chanticleer, the cock. He is right in his suggestion that this foreign bird, bird's note is celebrated by the poets of all countries. In Persian Sufi poetry, there are so many references to rooster, to cock, to the music of this early rising bird, with so many colorful and inspiration, inspiring interpretations of its message, that I think a bulky book can be compiled to cover the subject. So, let's first give the poem of and then a Persian poem by Rumi about rooster, about the cock. Upon the bank at early dawn I hear the cocks proclaim the day. Though the moon shines securely on as if her course they could not stay. The sound invades each silent wood awakes each slumbering, slumbering bird till every fowl leads forth her breed, which on her nest the tuneful summons heard. Meeting that time has reached his prime, eternity is the flower, is in, in the flower, and this the faint confused chime that ushers in the sacred hour. And last time, 
and, and as time got so forward then, from what perennial fount of joy dost, dost thou inspire the hearts of men and teach them how they like to employ. In another case, he says, there is such health and length of, length of year in the elixir of thy note that God himself more young appears from the rare bragging of thy throat. There are many other references by uh, Toro, but I'll just now read a sonnet by uh, a very interesting sonnet by Rumi. Sobdam az ishq dani ta chemiguyat khurus. It is very difficult to rhyme, and Rumi has brought many Greek words to rhyme it with khurus because it has no rhyme in Persian words or very few rhymes. Sobdam az ishq dani ta chemiguyat khurus. خیز و شب را زنده دار و روز روشن نیست کوس Dost thou know what love prompts the cock to say Arise and keep the night, the nightly vigil And mounting, sorry, and maintain the feast during the day بالها برهم زند یعنی دریغا خاجم روزگار نازنین را میدهد بر آنیموس It flaps its wings to say Alas, my master is throwing his life to the winds آن خروسی کوتو را دعوت کند سوی خدا آن به صورت مرغ باشد در حقیقت انگلوس That cock who calls you to God It is only a bird in form in reality, it is a heavenly messenger. It is an angel. آن خروسی کوتو را دعوت کند سوی خدا آن به صورت مرغ باشد در حقیقت انگلوس. من قلام آن بباشید. سری در خروش است آن خروس و تو همی در خواب خوش نام او را تیر خانی نام خود را آنتروپوس. That cock is clamoring, bemoaning. And you sleep on. You call it a bird and you call yourself a human being. Man qolami an khurusam kuchenin pandi dahat. Khak paye u behayat asare vasilius. I'm a love, I am, sorry, I'm a slave of that cock who gives such advice. Her very feet are nobler than the head of the king. Now I am going to read you another piece from Sadi, uh, how he had been, he had received ecstasy and joy from the song of a bird early in the morning. I read the Persian first. یاد دارم که شبی در کاروانی همه شب رفته بودم و سهر در کنار بیشه خفته شوریدهی که در آن سفر همراه ما بود نعرهی برآورد و راه بیابان گرفت و یک نفس آرام نیافت 
چون روز شد گفتمشان چه حالت بود گفت بلبلان را دیدم که به نالش در آمده بودند از درخت و کپکان از کوه و قوکان در آب و بهائم از بیشه اندیشه کردم که مروبت نباشد همه در تسبیح و من به غفلت خفته I remember having once walked all the night with a caravan and then slept on the edge of the desert a distracted man who had accompanied us on that journey raised a shout ran towards the desert and took not a moment's rest when it was daylight I asked him What a state of his that was. He replied, I heard nightingales bemoaning on the trees, the partridges on the mountain, the frogs in the water, and the beasts in the wood. So I bethought myself that it would not be fair that I sleep in negligence while they were all praising God awake. You know, there is a verse, actually many verses in the Quran. that everything is, is in the world is glorifying God each in his own languages everything which is in heaven or in earth even the thunder is glorifying God another symbol in nature which is very common both in Torah's works and in Persian literature is winter and summer. What is winter and what is summer? Winter is the time of separation. Summer is the time of union. And, uh, but uh, there is a summer which is not followed by an autumn, by a winter. They are looking for that summer. This summer or this spring gives a token, gives a reference to that eternal summer or eternal spring. When winter fringes every bough with his fantastic wreaths and puts seal of silence now upon the leaves beneath, me think the summer still is nigh and lurk, lurketh underneath. I am reminded of a poem by Shakespeare, very famous, that when icicles hang by the wall, and then it says that uh, the owl, the owl has a merry note at this time. This merry note is a news. Fair blossoms deck the cheerful trees, and dazzling fruits depend. The north wind sighs a summer breeze, and nipping frosts to fend, bringing glad tidings unto me. The while I stand all ear of a serene eternity which need no winter fear, because all these summers. have the winter of fear. Summer's lease, in the words of Shakespeare, and summer's lease has all too short a date. It is only three months lease. Now I'm going to tell you a story of Solomon in Persian literature, uh, 
and how they interpret that story. Solomon had a precious ring, you know, that inscribed with the supreme name of God, or Isma Azam. They believe that anyone who knows this supreme name can do anything, from which he derived his worldly power. Once he decided to go on a journey, and so he entrusted the precious ring to a slave girl for the safekeeping. A demon coveted the ring and assumed the form of Solomon, because demons can have any form they wish. So a demon can take the form of the Quran, can recite the Bible to his own purpose, can have any form. So uh, one of the basic teachings of Persian literature is that you should not be deceived by forms. A demon coveted the ring and assumed the form of Solomon as a trick to deceive the slave girl into giving him the ring. As soon as he put the empowering ring on his finger, he went to the throne and called himself king and sat confidently on the Solomon's throne. Once the people had accepted the demon, demon Solomon as their ruler, he was able to remove the ring and uh, in order that it may not fall back into the uh, real Solomon's hand, he threw it into the sea, according to legends. When the real Solomon returned and sought his ring from the slave girl and discovered what had happened, he shrugged, giving up any thought of claiming his kingdom, because even without his kingdom, he was a king. Rumi says, Kei Soleiman razian shod garshudu mahi furush. I'll recite the poem here. Kei Soleiman razian shod garshudu mahi furush. Ahreman gar molt bestod, ahreman bod ahreman. What harm was it to Solomon to become a, a vendor of fish or a fish vendor? Even though the demon had usurped the throne, he was still the same old demon. So he shocked and uh, uh, giving up any thought of claiming his kingdom. And he went up to become a simple fisherman. In the course of time, the people of the kingdom came to discover that their ruler was not the real Solomon because of the cruelty and cruel and unjust nature of the demon's rule. Now, it happened that Solomon, in pursuing his fishing, one day on the eve of Nowruz, the night before Nowruz, the eve of Nowruz, which is the Persian New Year's Day, coinciding with the vernal equinox. It is 22nd of uh, March, I think. But it is actually the first day of a spring, uh, which is our Nowruz. On sitting, on a, on, a, on a slitting the belly of one of the fish he had caught, he discovered the ring. 
It took a good fortnight for the word to get to the people weary of the demon's rule and for the confirmation that he was not the real Solomon and the real Solomon is outside near the sea. And then they decided to go out and bring Solomon back to the sea and to assume his legitimate position on the throne. This is the day when we call Sizdad, the 13th day of Nowruz. Everybody has to go out. It is unlucky to stay at home because if you stay at home, it means that you are uh, a follower of the demon Solomon. You, are, you don't want the real Solomon. So you have to go out and uh, bring the Solomon back to the throne. Now, the, ruler, the rule of demon symbolizes the cold and barren reign of winter. And the return of Solomon to the throne stands for the coming of a spring. It is the custom of Persians to have fish, fresh fish, for dinner on the eve. You know, everywhere Iranians know that we have the custom of uh, having fish, fresh fish, uh, on the eve of Noruz. And that's why, because we, are, we hope that we'll find that ring inside the belly. In commemoration of Solomon's rediscovery of the divine ring. Now I'll recite some poems referring to this Solomon and uh, the interpretation thereof. Barkishay Murgasahar Naleya Dabudi Baz Kesuleiman Gulas Tarfahava Bazamat. O Nightingale, singing at dawn, sing David's psalms again. For the Solomon of the Rose has wafted back with the breezes. Or divela indosh tacht kar azan bud sacht. Div frushud ze tacht chatr Suleiman resit. The cursed demon was on the throne in the winter, and there was nothing but trouble. The demon was dethroned, and uh, the ages of Solomon was returned. Now I read uh, some lines from another sonnet by Rumi about spring, referring to Solomon. فصل بهار آمد ببین بستان پر از هور و پری گویی سلیمان بر سپه ارزه نمود انگشتری. Spring has arrived. The garden and meadows filled with the fairies and huris. Thou might say Solomon has displayed his ring before his assembled hosts. رومی رخان ماهوش بر رسته از خاک هبش چون نومسلمانان خوش بیرون شده از کافری. Fair maids of Hellenic beauty, fair maids of Hellenic beauty have sprung from the Ethiopian soil. Even as newly converted Muslims departing depart from infidelity. And then he says that John Bolbol Golnigar, as Gol Beagle Kolnigar, as Rang Dar Birang Show Tabuke Anjar Rahbari. Look deep into the heart of Nightingale and you will see the rose. Look deep into the heart of the rose and you will see the intellect, the universal intellect. So you can take a journey 
from colorlessness from color to colorlessness. See the universal intellect and make a journey from color to colorlessness. That thou mayst see the way into the beyond. And then Thoreau says that even we don't need to go to the whole year to wait for the whole year to show the spring and winter and the course of human life. But you can see it in a nutshell in just one day. Life is a summer's day when, as it were, for, for A, we sport and play. And none the night comes on, the plowman's work is done and day is gone. We read in this one page both youth, manhood and age, that hoary sage. The morning is our prime, that loves to scorn all time and knows no crime. The noon comes on a pace, and then with sweltering face we run our race. When eve comes stealing o'er, we ponder at our door on days of yore. Let's make the most of morn ere gray flies wind their horn and it is gone. In another place he says nature doth have her dawn each day but mine are far between. Content I cry for sooth to say mine brightest are a ween. You see he is waiting for his own morning. This is a morning of the nature but it reminds us that a morning is on the way to come. There is such a great morning that uh, this sun turns into a morning star. It fades when that great sun appears. So that is why Hafez says, Aftab az ruy ushud dar hijab. Sayera bashad hijab az aftab. When my beloved, my mistress, shows his face, which is that sun. The sun disappears. Now let's uh, say a few words about uh, a moon. Moon in Persian literature is a symbol of many things, but most of all is a symbol of prophets and saints and poets who can show us the light of the sun when it is disappeared, when it is absent. And also there is a belief that women have been made of the moon and women are the only people who can show us, I mean, and the, the only sex that can show us uh, the sun in the middle of the night. Uh, but in English literature, moon is, is sometimes a symbol of immortality, 
as well as in Persian literature because uh, they believed that uh, there are many heavens for example the sun and the Venus and, and this is the moon and below the moon above the moon it is it is the realm of rest but below the moon is the realm of motion so this is mortality and this is immortality below the moon. Anything below the moon means that the realm of mortality. I recite a poem by Henry David Thoreau. The full orbed moon with unchanged ray mounts up the eastern sky, not doomed to these short nights for a, but shining steadily. She does not wane, but my fortune, which her rays do not bless, my wayward path, declines, sorry, declines soon, but she shines not the less. And if she faintly glimmers here, and paled in her light, yet always in her proper sphere, she is mistress of the night. Well, I will bring it to an end, and I'm sorry that I was not intoxicated tonight. I didn't have the brandy, and I had some trouble with my heart, and so I was not in fully tuned up to express more of Persian literature and more of Toro. But uh, I'll end it with a poem about the heart of man. This heart of man is the heart of Persian Sufism. <clears throat> According to a tradition, God cannot be contained by earth and heavens, but can be contained in the heart of man. And there is a saying by one of the Sufis that God has two houses. One is the Kaaba in Mecca, in which he never went, and one is human heart from which he never, which he never left. <laughs> See? And there is a story that uh, a simple man went to Kaaba, he expected to see God. He went, he looked inside and said, he didn't see God. And then he complained, oh God, why do you invite me and you are not at home? <laughs> so, uh, the human heart is the actual Kaaba. It is the only place where you can find God. So, Rumi says, in Jahan Chon Kuze Del This world is a pitcher. The heart is a sea. The world is a narrow lane. The heart is a wonderful city. In Jahan Chon Kuze Del In Jahan Chon Kuche Del The heart is a wonderful city and the whole world is just but a uh, past, but a lane, a narrow lane, a narrow street. What is there in the pitcher which is not to be found in the sea? What is there in the lane which is not to be found in the city? Jesmetujuz asked, 
Thy body is a part of nature, that's right. Thy soul is the entire whole. Depreciate or deprecate not thy station. Thou, though presently thou art spurned in this abode of exile. And then I recite a poem by the greatest uh, Sufi of all times, probably at least uh, in theory, he was the greatest theoretician, theoretician of Sufism, Sheikh Muhyiddin Arabi, who is called Sheikh Achbar or Dr. Maximus. I recite the English, I mean the Arabic and then the English translation. It is a very well-known poem and uh, I think that uh, everywhere in the world it has to be written to be read by people to find such a heart. He is speaking about his own heart which is uh, uh, greater than nature. My heart is receptacle or receiving of all forms. My heart is a pasture for the gazelles, for the deer, and a monastery for the Christian monk. It is a temple for the idols and a Kaaba for the pilgrims, for the haji, for the Kaaba. Rumi says, you know, uh, Muslims go to Kaaba and circambulate, they turn round, round it seven times. Seven times. But Rumi says, they are reasonable pilgrims. I am a mad pilgrim, I will not count my turning round. I will turn forever. I will not count it. So, Haji Divanam, Haji Aqil Tabaf Chan Kunat Haftbar. According to rituals, it is only seven times. Haji Divanam Man Nashamaran Tabaf. I'm a mad pilgrim. I won't count how many times I've turned round. Because a lover does not turn round seven times and go home. <laughs> they go back home and then they have nothing to do with that. So, it's uh, a cabin for the pilgrim. My heart is the table of Torah, in the Bible, and the book of Koran. Actually, they believe that the whole Koran is in our heart. It was first revealed to the heart, and then revealed to the pages and to words. You see, so Sheikh Mahmoud Shabastari says, they have written all the Quran in our heart. So why did the prophets came? Did the prophets come? They came to remind us that we should read our heart. See, they are reminder. So actually, Muzakir is the name of Prophet Muhammad. He is Muzakir. He is a reminder. So, 
my heart, my religion is love. Whenever its steed or its channel may take me, and this is my face, and this is my creed. I recite the Persian as well, for those who might know of the Persian translation. قلب من پذیرای همه صورت هاست قلب من چراگاهیست برای غزالان وحشی و سومعیست برای راهبان ترسا و معبدیست برای بودپرستان و کعبهیست برای حاجیان قلب من الواه مقدس تورات است و کتاب آسمانی قرآن دین من عشق است و مرکب عشق به هر کجا خواهد مرا سوق می دهد و این است ایمان و مذهب من so According to a poem by Rumi, if there is any clapping, it is going to be for Persian literature, for English literature, and for all literature of the world, good literature of the world. Dukaf be shadi uzan ki kaf ze bahrebeyas. Dukaf be shadi uzan means clap your hands for his happiness, because all clapping is for him. And at the same time, kaf means poem. means foams and frost Lecture, would you like to answer any questions? You if think? yes, if uh, do we have what 10 minutes? Yes. So, please. Yes, please. Yes. Yes, I know, but uh, originality is in you, not in the poem. I mean, the idea is taken from Greek mythology, I know, but uh, your interpretation and uh, your feeling, your experience uh, is actually the new chicken you have added for the soup. <laughs> yes. Yes. Poultry, yes, I mean. Yes. 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 <laughs> How beautiful. Well, every time we have the brandy, the double distilled brandy, we have more ecstasy, more joy more insight and more fluency. Otherwise, you are dumb, you cannot speak. See? So, 
You will excuse me if I was not. Yes, please. What is the extent of Thoreau's actual acquaintance with Sadi, with Alfred, with Rumi? I think it was through the works of Emerson and uh, some translations. He has actually quoted uh, a complete uh, part, I mean, a story from uh, Gulistan of Sadi, and he says that I read it in the Gulistan of Sheikh Sadi. But he didn't know Persian. He knew Greek well, Latin as well. Yes? You said something about that the Sufis don't see what is outside as an illusion. Yes. You know, they don't think that uh, the outside world or the material world is just an illusion or it doesn't exist. As Berkeley said that, you know, once uh, Berkeley came and said, no matter, there's no matter. And then David Hume came and said, never mind. Because, you see, because he said that by the same arguments you say that there is no matter, by the same argument I would say never mind. Because there is no mind actually. So, but the Sufi don't say that. They say that this, uh, this body... And whatever which is in the world of extension and dimension is just uh, a shadow of the heart. Actually, not the shadow, it is the shadow of the shadow of the shadow of the heart. You mean Rumi says, yes, so yes, so yes, so yes, deras. Yes, keander for a poye deras. I mean, the material body or uh, matter is the shadow of the shadow of the shadow of heart. So, uh, this is what uh, John Donne, I think, says, that once, one night, I dreamt eternity, which was all light. Eternity was all light. And below eternity, there was shadow. The whole world was moving in a shadow. So, this is a platonic, uh, platonic uh, idea. Plato said that that this world is just a shadow. But it doesn't mean that it is an illusion. The shadow which is crystallized, which, is, uh, which has form, which has substance, of course, but compared, compared with the soul, it is a shadow, because the light is there. If the light is taken, then you will see that it is a shadow. All the beauty of the form is it's because of the soul and because of the spirit. Something more about the heart. Do you mean the physical heart? No, of course, this physical heart, according to Nezami, he says, Del be zaban goft ke ei bi zaban. Mor katala bogzaraz in ashiyan. It is, you know, according to a part of Nezami, he says that uh, I went to the door of heart one night. I went to the door of heart. I knocked at the door. They opened the door. And they said, leave all multiplicity and come in. So when I went in, I saw the heart. I saw the stomach. I saw the uh, kidneys and everything. And then I asked, are you the heart which people talk about so much? He said, no, I am just a nest for that bird. The bird is outside. See? So it is just a nest, this heart. Yes? Could it be 
It is a nest for the soul. Actually, he says that uh, heart is a hybrid son, love child. Is a hybrid love child. His father is uh, uh, heaven and his mother is earth. So they married and heart was born. Yes. Well, of course, uh, transformation is going from one form to another. So the best transformation is to go from form to formless. Because uh, so far as you are in the world of form, you are limited. You are, suppose you are happy. Your happiness is so much that it diffuses, it sends out certain uh, lights and it appears in certain forms. But this form is just a shadow of this happiness. And uh, it may transform. Transform is your, your happiness first comes into the form of poetry and somebody takes this form of poetry into music and somebody changes this music into painting these are transformation. But the best thing to do is to uh, actually make it naked of any form to get this happiness. Otherwise, you cannot understand what happiness is. Because you see every time in a different form. And uh, then you come to think that it is a form. While happiness has neither color nor form, it is just happiness. Is there happiness a form? Um, Pardon? Maybe we create a new form from going through the formless. So we take, create another form. Of course. If, you know, if you get to the source and the formless, then you can create thousands of forms. Then you can create thousands of forms. If you know the Quran, not the form, but the meaning, then you can create another Quran. Because you know the formless reality, the substance, the basic idea, and then it comes out into different forms. But so far as you so far as you have not got the actual form, I mean the formless, you cannot recreate it into new forms. You are an imitator. You see you see a form here, you see it's beautiful though, so you change it into another form. It is a translation from form into form. From poetry into poetry. Some people read some poems and then compose some poems. It is from poetry into poetry. From word into word. But from vision into word. I was thinking about the physical side. When Einstein talked about energy, never talk about the actual what is energy, talk about the manifestation of energy. So yes. somehow it looks for another form that it contains the energy. So when you talk about formless, possibly you create another form. 
You know, since uh, Einstein was a physician, uh, he was not going to emphasize on the uh, reality or the nature of energy. He just wanted to say that energy, whatever it is, whatever it is, um, appears into different forms. One form is electricity, one form is potential energy, cinetic energy, and different other forms. Uh, so he was not a philosopher in that case. But philosophers say that um, energy is actually the heart. All energy is der derived from the heart, which has no motion. But it is the source of all motion. You are sitting here, you are co completely at rest, and you create motion because you take your pen, you write, you create motion. I wonder how Francis Bacon didn't agree, didn't accept that there must be a mover who is not moved. We ourselves are movers who are not moved. There is no motion in us when we create motion. I think the time is over. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Bacon.